we're very much about trying to create community around this idea of changing the way agriculture works. First, I thought it was just about changing some grass. And then we thought it was about changing the soil. And now we realize it's all about changing the people and their brains and our relationship to the land and our relationship to each other. So ah, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And we are we have enthusiastically embraced a role in the network. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Once again, we're going out across the country and we're looking at ranches and farms, particularly a ranch, and a, a ranch that's exploring how to do things right. I mean, paying attention to regenerative agriculture. I'm happy now to find ourselves over in the middle part of California, not too far from the coast. And I want to welcome Sally Calhoun with the Picinus Ranch. Sally, welcome to Farmer Table Talk. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to talking to you. Sally, I have people that listen to Farm to Table Talk that are curious about farming methods, ranching methods, and that curiosity leads them to listening to my shows, but they lead them to you as well. When you find that people are curious about Picinus Ranch and what you're doing, what is it that they're curious about? What is it that people like to find out? Oh, that's kind of a hard question because there's a lot happening and it kind of depends on which direction the, the folks asking are coming from. But uh-huh. these days we have a lot of people really interested in what is happening in our vineyard, which is a, a kind of interesting design of a vineyard to be managed by sheep. So that that's a big one. And then just generally in the funder and investor community, a lot of people are curious about just how we're trying to do regenerative agriculture and what that looks like and and what we're learning trying to do this on the ground. Well, you know, we talk to people that are doing regenerative agriculture, and one of the things that many have in common is that they have been larger scale in some cases and gotten smaller. And there's some people that are starting off with a couple of acres. Uh, You have a substantial ranch, and if I understand it right, it's thousands of acres, right, that your ranch is? Yes, so it's a serious ranch, and it covers covers a, a lot of territory. And for people that uh, aren't from that part of the of the country, how would you describe it? Uh, if we were going to have some somebody fly into San Francisco Airport and rent a car or something and drive down, which would probably be two hours or an hour, about two hours, right? Um, to get down to to where you are and look at the ranch. What would it look like to them? And what would the what's the territory look like? Well, you would it's interesting because you would drive from San Francisco through the San Francisco Bay Peninsula and then through Silicon Valley. And after about an hour and a half or so, you would take a left turn off the freeway and feel like you have entered another world. It's a totally agricultural world, completely off the beaten path. There are people who say that San Benito County, which is our county, doesn't even exist, who live in the county to the north. That's how how little known the place is. You would drive through a lot of very conventional, large-scale industrial agriculture. And after you left the last town and saw the sign that said, next service is 76 miles, you, you you would come to Picinus, which is really just a general store. 
And we are 7,600 acres, about the size of a small 30,000 person suburb in the Bay Area. And um, it's full of historic buildings. You would see a lot of rolling hills. It's not very steep, rolling, mostly grassy hills, very little forest, no forest, very little brush cover. And we have a river that runs right through the middle of the ranch that meanders around with a large riparian corridor. So you would see a, a big, what would look to you potentially, if you didn't know California, like just a big, empty bunch of grass. <laughs> oh, you know, well, and then again, people that don't know California, that grass looks green if you hit a couple of months in the middle of the winter, but then it starts turning uh, gold. Uh, That's right. It, it, how, how your impression would vary dramatically depending on when you came. If you came in January, you might think, you might share my perception that God took out a giant bucket of neon green paint and just went nuts. And I the whole know. Place would be green. But if you show up in September, my impression then is that the whole landscape is like, ah, I am so thirsty. I'm so thirsty because it hasn't <laughs> rained in four or five months. So it'd be very dry and dusty. So it's, it's it. hard to explain. But again, you get in the, the winter when we used to have rain and it reminded you of Ireland, you know, just like a, the Emerald Isle and everything is just beautiful green everywhere. And then, like I say, it turns shades and you're on your way to brown in August, but you go through some gold stages that are pretty nice, too. And then you got usually there's like scrub oak and and some other vegetation don't uh, we we have some on most of the hillsides we have scattered mature oak trees big um live oak trees most of them down the valley bottoms we have some giant 400 year old valley oaks and then we have a few areas that are oak savanna mm -hmm. on the ranch which are kind of mysterious some of them we have we we are sit between two faults we sit between the san andreas fault and the hayward fault we're right here in this very geologically active place 35 different kinds of soils, crazy stuff happening with the seismology and the geology that I don't understand, but it contributes. And we, ha we also have a, a good bit of wetlands, or we did back when it rained. We had, we had some pretty extensive wetlands, which many of which have dried up. There's still some left, but it's, it's kind of discouraging over the last 20 years. So are you able to, um, have pigs take advantage of some of those acorns under those all those oak trees? Well, there are a lot of wild pigs who take advantage of them. The USDA figured at one point that we have a population of a th about a thousand feral pigs. Oh, right. Every year we now raise pigs to sell pork. Yeah. But um, we we don't we don't really use the acorns in our pork production. It's oh, you should wild. try it. You should try it. We should. We are concerned about mixing the our pigs with the wild pigs oh no you don't want to do that no, keeping them separate of, i know just throw some canvases out there and let those acorns drop on the canvas or something yeah and but, feed them we, uh, we should do that you're right in a year if we get if we get acorns acorns are sometimes few and far between in these days of drought oh well you know it's a well it's an it's an interesting dynamic but wait a minute you you lost me in the drive from the airport because we're you had to go through the little town of Piscinus. Piscinus. I had to look at my notes again. Piscinus. You go through and you get the general store and a restaurant. That I stop. If I came, <laughs> I, I I stop. Uh, I stop for every general store and well, um, probably the restaurant too. If I go in there, would they would they know who you are? So if I they they, they would they would know who the Piscinus Ranch and I both are. I, I would I'm not sure I could recommend the food, but 
the store is worth a stop. Oh, okay. Okay. So, well, I mean, at least, you know, you used to could get on a hot day, grab an ice cream bar or something, get back in the car. Buy buy a case of beer if you're coming to visit. Yeah. Well, I could could do that, do that as well. So you get on down the road and we, and we get to the, to the ranch and, and let's describe again, uh, the things that are going on there, because you, you, you mentioned briefly the pigs, but there's got, you have other livestock on the enterprise, right? Yes, our, our biggest livestock are sheep. We have a herd of about uh, a flock of over a thousand ewes. And so mostly we raise sheep year round. We have a small number of cattle here year round that we're finishing for our grass fed beef program. We don't have any cows. We buy calves from a neighbor. Um, in this two days this year, for example, we'll be raising turkeys. We raise hundreds of turkeys every year. And we'll have our pigs. And we have in the past done some layers. We're doing a few broilers, chickens, meat chickens this year. So those are pretty much the animals that are hanging around the place. And then we've on, on the agricultural side, we raise grapes and we have raised cool season grains in the past. And uh, we, we do forage. So we have a, a couple of center pivots for uh-huh. irrigating um, to raise forage. When you say the cool season, um, I mean, could this be like winter wheat or yes, uh, rye? Wheat, wheat. Or, you know. Exactly right. Peas. So we, we've done some both irrigated and mostly un- dry farmed mm-hmm. some of the cool season crops. Now, those cool season crops, the, the, the grains like that, are you just selling selling those or is there a way that you utilize them into a, into a feed program at all? So we're working on us- utilizing them into our feed program. When we When we raised them, we just sold them. So we sold most of it for seed. It was very cool. We raised triticale. We ended up getting the seed cleaned and then we're able to sell most of it right here locally as a cover crop for vineyards. We are surrounded on most of the hillsides by vineyards. This this has been a big vineyard location since the mid 60s. So Oh, what do you grow? What a, what what a type of grape? Well, so we think so we just replanted. There was a vineyard here planted in 1965, pretty much all taken out in 1995. So we replanted just 25 acres in two phases. And we're guessing that it might get hotter and drier. It's just a guess, but that's that's what we've guessed. So we're doing varieties mostly from the Southern Mediterranean, from Spain, Southern Italy, and Greece. This is your climate adaptation then. That's exactly right. It turns out also to be very beneficial because there are a lot of very interesting winemakers in California taking these varietals that have traditionally been used as blending grapes, not very big in California, and they're now making wines based on that varietal. So this year we harvested Grenache, Assertico, and Tempranillo. Assertico and Tempranillo both being pretty unusual. And we have a winemaker, a natural winemaker, who who did um, those wines. We've also got Mouvedre and um, all kinds of other very obscure varieties, which I can't remember. Oh, they're good. They're good. And the and the the Grenache and the Mouvedre and and Tempranillo, uh, some you know Spanish styles of wines that uh, that you, you can taste the plant in them. You know, it's 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 uh, not just the fruit doing its work by itself. There's something of, about Grenache that I've always really liked. That I feel like I'm I'm really drinking the plant. Well, interesting. That's that's what we're hoping for. We're we're helping to definitely embrace the story of terroir, and that's one reason we're working with natural winemakers, right? It's a combination of the story of the grapes and then how those grapes express themselves with without a tremendous amount of intervention from the winemaker. 
Now you put the um, you're putting sheep in the vineyards too. Now there was a time that was discouraged, and it's kind of coming back again, wasn't it? I mean, there for a while there, it seemed like there was so much attention to worry about pathogens that could could uh, especially in vegetable crops that you know they wanted to keep animals a long ways away from them. And it seemed to me that even even vineyards were doing that. When I thought, well, they don't have to worry; they're not dropping the grapes on the ground, but but right. still, well, it, it was kind of discouraged, it seemed like. Well, so for thousands of years, right, um, sheep have been in vineyards during the dormant season when there weren't any leaves on the on the, on the grapevines. Right. Turns out sheep love grapes and um, leave, the leaves of grapevines. Oh. So traditionally, they've been in during the dormant season, and then they were pulled out. And I think that hasn't really been discouraged. I think it kind of fell out of favor in the United States and is, is coming back, but it's been the long-term way these two have existed for millennia. And what we've done is we've designed a vineyard, which is designed to have sheep in it all year round. And in fact, we, we refer to it as a vineyard managed by the sheep. So what we've done in order to do that is we've trellised the grapes, the vines up higher mm-hmm. so that the leaves and the fruit are out of the reach of standard-sized sheep. And it turns out the sheep will do all of the suckering, which is really not a fun job um, in California winemaking. They'll do all the end pruning and they maintain the the vineyard floor so we don't have to mow. And we don't till. It's a no-till vineyard. It's really a vineyard we set out to, um, to use the five principles of soil health. And it just makes it very unusual for a vineyard. But that's all we've really done is, is to try to have healthy soil in a vineyard. Well, and also, uh, sheep don't really like to eat with their heads sticking up in the air. I mean, they they tend to graze graze low, and if you happen to have if you happen to have goats in the in there, they, the goats stand on their hind legs and and like to graze up, and so they would they would rip up a vineyard, I would imagine. But we would we'd never know. This is not designed to have goats in it at all, and it's really not designed to have cattle. Cattle could walk through it in a hurry. We yeah. know some people in Australia yeah. who've done that, but it's really designed. For sheep, I mean, sheep are great um, animal to integrate if you want to integrate livestock, whether it's a vineyard or an orchard. And you're talking about the pathogen. So one of the things that actually limits pretty significantly what we do, given where we're located, is that we're totally committed to one of the principles of soil health, which is to reintegrate animals into crop systems. And there are a lot of things that we can't grow because of the current um, concern about pathogens. So that we we don't grow things where having animals in there will be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that there's, there's some ways that that's, we're going to see more and more of it take place. And I suspect even in orchards, when some people start looking back into knocking nuts down onto canvas tarps or something like that, rather than directly in the ground is the, the value. Right. I mean, well, almonds. Yeah. That's a big change in almonds. We're probably going to end up harvesting off the ground. I mean, pistachios already are. The funny thing about almonds is everyone is berserk about food safety and almonds and the pathogens. If you graze the orchard, even though they come off the ground, they get pasteurized. Well, yeah, and I don't even think they need to be because they come wrapped pretty well. You they, know, by they, the time you got a hole and then you got a nutshell, and um, you know, you you really don't have too much to worry about. No, but, you don't. Uh, but it it is an issue for almonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, uh, one other thing about the sheep in the vineyards: uh, how does that help you with fertilization? Because um, well, I mean, they're going to be they're going to be pooping and you know all over the all over the vineyard floor. Does it does it help you with the amount of nitrogen that's necessary? 
Sure, it does. I mean, especially peeing. That the urine yeah. is actually is actually a much bigger sure. source of nitrogen. And and we've just done. I mean, they're just a part of the whole fertility program. Right. We are certified organic, so we don't use any. We haven't added any outside fertility. One of the great things about grapes is our soil is becoming healthier. We know that our soil organic matter has gone up from about one and a half percent to two and a half or three, which is pretty significant. And we're actually, our vineyard manager who came up with this design is concerned that our soil may become so healthy that it's so fertile that maybe the grapes won't be stressed enough and they won't be as interesting in their flavor. That's fine. So we, yeah, but we think that as our soil gets healthier, our grapevines will get healthier and they're, they're pretty healthy now. There's a, there's a gentleman named John Kempf, um, who's, I know John, you know, John. And so he's got this idea that, um, or he talks about this idea that if the bricks is high enough on the leaves of your plant, right. That they're basically that the pests can't eat them. They just physically can't eat them. Hmm. And we currently, and then that's about for some pests, it's a bricks of 12 and for others, it's a bricks of 14 and our grapevines are, are pretty much over 14 all summer, um, with really no, extra fertility added. So, you know, with lamb and wine, you're starting a, a pretty good meal. You know, you've got a yes. few things to fill in between that, but not much. I mean, that's, that's, uh, if you got good, good wine and good lamb, it's all going together. I'm, I'm curious, um, are you seeing anything unique in the flavor profiles, uh, either in the grapes because they're being grazed and, and how the sheep are managing. And then the other way around is possibly even in the lamb because of what they're, what they're consuming, whether that might affect flavor there. I'd say we can't really tell on the lamb. They spend a pretty small, if you take our whole lamb flock, mm-hmm. um, any animal spends a pretty small amount of time in the vineyard. So we use holistic planned grazing in the vineyard, right? So they're there for a few days and then and then right. they're gone. So, but we do have excellent lamb. We raise um, hair sheep, Katahdin and Katahdin Dorper crosses, and harvest it when they're about a year old. Anyway, we have we have fantastic. I'm not a lamb fan, but we do really have good lamb. I love lamb, I, and I, I uh, and actually, I'm sorry that we've had to go to so much hair sheep because I'm also a big fan of wool. But uh, it's it, it's a challenge. Not everybody's that set up for it. We can't get shearers that most of there are shearers north of San Francisco, but as far as we know, there are no shearers who would come to San Benito County. So we decided, and we're going to do meat. So we decided we we do that in terms of the wine. I mean, we've just, this is our first, our first vintage. We did get some feedback on the Assertico that people were astonished that a first vintage could be this good. So it could be the clone, could be the sheep. There is this idea, right? That we have this, that grazing imparts, not just, um, pesticide uh, resilience, but also does seem to stimulate growth. If maybe saliva stimulates growth, we, we, we don't really understand how that happens. But Well, you've got 7,000 acres, not all of it in vineyards. So, so tell no. me about the job where the cows are doing. What uh, You've got a cow herd too. We don't have a cow herd. We actually only have about 50 and uh, 50 years oh, okay. at a time. So, and they mostly, um, they're mostly being finished under the center pivots on irrigated forage, except in the winter. So it's really the sheep flock that's okay. taking care of the, of the 7,000 acres. And again, we use holistic plant grazing and, and our goal is really to create a more perennial landscape, right? This landscape, if you don't know the history of California, but the Spanish arrived here in about 1790 and within the next 80 years, basically all the plants, animals, and people were gone who had originally been here. So it became, it went from being uh, perennial 
landscape, much argued over, but clearly much more perennial is now, to being dominated by annual grasses from the Mediterranean. So it's this complete ecosystem flip. And what we're trying to do with our sheep is graze in a way that allows the perennials, encourages perennial plants of all kinds to come back. So you're trying to turn the clock back a couple hundred years. Yeah, hopefully we'll, we, we, we like to talk about it as moving the clock forward. We probably will never be able to go back. I mean, and, and it's, I don't know whether it will work. <laughs> I know. So you look at that area again, uh, before the Spanish came, that was a really populated area of the indigenous people of, of California. Many tribes lived there, lived very well. Uh, and it was, um, some have said, I believe maybe I saw it on your website as well, suggesting that that might have been one of the most populated areas of indigenous people in the whole, what now is the United States. I've, re- I've read that. I don't know exactly where they get that number from, but yes, that appears to be maybe true. Yes, it would be a pretty easy place to make a living. Yeah, yeah. Until the Spanish came. And um, and then soon after that, in that area, yeah, the missions were playing a big role. And now the missions where you are, were those were those missions controlling how that land was being uh, managed or ranched, you know, back in the, the late 1700s? Because Probably more more like the early 1800s. I mean, okay. it wasn't it wasn't granted out until 1845 in a Mexican land grant, but there were probably um, there were probably cattle and horses that were roaming here um, long before that. And certainly, many of the people who lived here had been um, rounded up or forced into the missions, the two nearest missions. So, and, and the seeds, the seeds from all these annual grasses, as I said, they, the seeds came with the Spanish in the hay, and then the Spanish brought their animals, who were the cattle and the sheep. And most importantly, they came with their, um, their mindset, their right. management ideas, and the whole thing just crashed quickly. You know, ever so often we find seeds that have been around for a long time. You hear about them in the pyramids and other places. They've been able to find seeds. And what about uh, like our original grasslands? Uh, these, this, the in the area like you're in, for example. I mean, uh, is there enough there to start coming back? That there's enough of the native grasses, or are there are there seeds available that you can reseed with native grasses to get to get it reestablished in that area? Well, you, so people always ask this question because I started out, I became a rancher because I got this idea that if I practiced holistic planned grazing, that this could be a perennial landscape again. So people are like, so did you plant the seeds of the perennial grasses? Like, no, because they're very expensive. They're very hard to establish and no reasonable rancher is ever going to do that. But if we can change the way we manage our cattle on the landscape and these grasses will come back, then that's something that that ranchers might do over time, right? That has some possibility of scaling. So we've not planted a single California cool season perennial grass. I figure as soon as I plant one pound, people will be like, ah, that's why they came back. No. We're just really trying to see if the seeds are here. And if we, it turned out when we got here, we thought there were none of the perennial grasses left. Not true. We figured out how to find them. And there were these, you know, a few very sad grasses here. Uh-huh. So it's hard to say whether they have spread from those few sad grasses or whether there is a seed bank. But I think the real problem in reestablishing those grasses is that the soil is completely different than it was when it was a perennial grassland. It's now completely bacterially dominated soil because it's all annuals. And so if you just pitch out some um, perennial seeds, they're going to have, it's going to be a hard road for them. It's like, I think of it as it has to be this circular thing. You have to, 
you know, you have to get mulch down on the land. You have to kind of start improving the soil. Then you get a seed of a perennial and hopefully it will grow and then it will become, it will change the soil and then it will be easier for all the other perennials because it's, it's a soil problem, not just a plant problem. You got to back up there for a second because you said something about the bacterial dominated. I'm not quite sure what that matter. Oh, so if you look at, so soil is really a living entity, right? Soil is really alive. It has what they say there, 7 billion organisms in a cup of healthy garden soil or something. So, so it's this incredible living entity. But if you look at soils from annual systems, like from an annual crop field or from our annual grasslands, virtually all of that soil life is bacteria. But if you looked in a forest, uh, like full of big trees, sure. it would be much more fungal. So some people like to talk about the ratio between bacteria to fungus in a soil. Uh-huh. And it's and the fungus is what connects all of the plants together so that they can share resources, so they can talk to each other. You need the fungus to do that. Except and in an animal system, yes, the micro there's several kinds, but mycorrhizal would be the, would be the biggest one. Yes. There's a couple of different associations, but, but if you have just an annual grassland, there's no point in that because, you know, the roots last for six months and go two inches deep. So it's very hard for a perennial plant here. If you think about it, normally, if this were a thriving grassland, that seed would germinate, it would put down its root and it would, it would then tap into that um, fungal association and same with an oak tree, right? It would tap in and then we get help. And we get help from the bigger oak trees and from the bigger grasses to survive this, the first six months when it doesn't rain at all. So it's very hard if you don't have friends. And if you're not connected to those friends with this fungal network for a perennial plant here to get established. So it's kind of like a chicken and an egg thing here. Well, and in fact, I'm just trying to think how hard it is. You're just trying to take care of what we see, uh, how the soil is coming back. But boy, trying to, uh, how you stimulate uh, the, the the fungi uh, to, to to get back to what it needs to do its share in, su- in supporting the, those grasslands. Yeah, it's, re- it's really hard to figure out. I mean, we have, so we do have a lot more perennial grasses now than we did have. There's, yeah. there's no question that the number is by several orders of magnitude bigger. You suppose, suppose there's better nutrition in that for the uh, for the sheep grazing those, those so grasses? It's, it's an odd thing. So like ranchers here mostly think that these California perennial grasses aren't very good forage. What uh-huh. we find is that they stay green longer in the summer. Uh-huh. And so, you know, in in March, when everything is green, the sheep aren't interested in them. Neither are the cattle. But then you get to June and July when they're still green and everything else is brown they seem to be very tasty then yeah well that's well that's fascinating now one thing that strikes me if you take an area like you've just described that went through um, the indigenous communities that live there the 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 spanish the the missions the 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 mexican land grants the uh you know then the gold rush came and you had people that weren't too far away from you that had a million acres and running hundreds of thousands of cattle over vast 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 expanses of that area and you get up to today and what you're describing that you're doing in that 7,000 plus acre ranch. Um, and I'm just wondering what would be going on there if you weren't going on there? I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of history for that area, but what do you do if you didn't ranch? What would that land be? Uh, it's kind of far yet to have a commute for housing developments uh, from San Francisco. Interestingly, we we bought it after the developers gave up. There, it was owned by developers 
from oh. 1989 until 2000, until 2000. Yes. And um, they were trying to build 4,500 houses and three golf courses. And the county decided that finally, after 10 years, that that wasn't a good idea. So that was what that's one possibility, but there's not a lot of development around here. If we weren't here, it would probably just be a regular cattle ranch. That's what all the land around here is. It's mostly privately owned and it's mostly ranched and it's ranched in a whole bunch of different ways, but it would probably, when we got here, it was pretty overgrazed and that's probably what it would be if we, if we weren't here. Well, how do you describe your responsibility to spread the word of what you're doing? Uh, uh, there's people associated with the with the ranch, and I don't understand that part. That has an outreach that has you kind of have a welcome mat for people to say, "Here's what we're doing, and here's what works." And you know, you're welcome to learn from what we're learning. Right. So when, when I got here, the one of the first things I did after trying to grow perennial grass was to do grass fed beef. And what I started to think about was that being an urban person and coming from the Silicon Valley, that, and while I'm an introvert, I'm happy to talk about these things. I do not want to make small talk, but I'll talk about this all day. If you want to talk about soil, I'm in all day. So it seemed like a reasonable position for us to be in was to be as a bit of a bridge. There are a lot of ranchers who are really not interested in talking to the general public or educating them or you know, being involved with them in any way, which is fine. They just want to raise cattle. So long ago, we decided that we could maybe be that bridge. And then I met some folks who were trying to change the world um, up in British Columbia. And when I asked them what was the most important thing they had done in 20 years of work, they said convening. So in, in 2009, I started to think, well, I have a place where we can convene because I have 25 old buildings on this place, which we've restored and are still in the process of restoring. And I thought, so I can convene. So sort of began my career as a convener in 2010. And I started out by hosting classes with very, with world-renowned holistic management educators who never came to California. Yeah. So I decided I'll bring them to California and I started hosting classes and kind of one thing has led to another. And now we are very much about, um, we're very much about trying to create community around this idea of changing the way agriculture works. And because we think, you know, I say, ah, first I thought it was just about changing some grass. And then we thought it was about changing the soil. And now we realize it's all about changing the people and their brains and our relationship to the land and our relationship to each other. So ah, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And we are we have enthusiastically embraced uh, a role in the network. So do you do you host classes? Do you create an, uh, a curriculum and then invite people to register and come and, and, and attend uh, sessions at the ranch? We do some of that. We do some online stuff since the pandemic, even though we didn't want to. So we do have we, we've done an online regenerative ag class the last two summers. We also host um, world class presenters like John Kim will be here in the middle of May to teach a class. And um, it, we also host a lot of other groups now. We're starting to host other kind of aligned groups who have meetings and workshops here. So, yeah, we're just we're just part of this growing network. We think of our work as just being part of the mycelial, the fungal network. We're, we're yeah, just a node yeah. here. I, I, I love that sort of thing. And I, I, I can see that there's an appetite to have people that participate in things like that. And uh, I got to come down sometime. I'm going to go check, check you, you out. Could, you should That's absolutely come. In, the, in a couple of weeks, we're hosting one of what we call our learning journeys. So we, So there's the work we're doing on the ranch. And then we also invest in food and ag off the ranch and we have a philanthropic, a grant making program off the ranch. And as part of that, um, 
we are we host something called Learning Journeys for for funders, for investors, and philanthropists. Oh. The idea trying to be that there's a lot of interest in regenerative agriculture, but we think it's important that people who want to fund this transition understand what the transition is about. There's a lot also about to be a lot of greenwashing, I think. Well, um, there's, that's true. Actually, you're probably preaching to the choir here because not only with me, but the people I know that are listening, which we I've got listeners kind of across the country and really around the world that listen to Farm to Table Talk. And there's quite a number that love the sort of thing that you're doing and have an appetite to learn more and to share. So we're going to, in fact, I think I should just pause and have you give a website address um, so that, and then we'll, we'll get back on our conversation. But for people that want to know more about what's going on at the ranch, is there a place that they can find it? Yes, we have a website called PicinusRanch.com. And how to spell Picinus? It's kind of weird. It's P-A-I-C-I-N-E-S. Good. And and um, they can they can respond there and they can say Sally sent me, right? Sally. They can absolutely say that. The, the other place, we actually have another website that people might want to check out that talks about the work more broadly, which is called um, the No Regrets Initiative website. Ah, so what's the story behind that? It's got a great name. It, yes. So, so the idea was, I, as I said, we do philanthropy, we do investing. And so we sort of wanted to put together a name for the whole of the work, the whole body of the work. We named it the No Regrets Initiative. It's a 10-year initiative. Its mission is to regenerate the agricultural soils of North America and the communities who steward them. So we got the people in there. And um, it's named because Carbon sequestration in soil has is a no regrets has been called a no regrets negative emissions technology. So a negative emissions technology means you suck carbon out of the air and put it someplace where it won't exacerbate climate change. So if we take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil, that's a negative emissions technology. It's been called a no regrets negative emissions technology because even if there is no climate change, that gets harder and harder to say every year. But if there is no climate change, then we still only have, according to the UN, 55 years of topsoil left on the planet. So regenerating the Earth's topsoil would have been the most one of the most important jobs of the 21st century without climate change, which kind of gets lost in this. And then, so it's a no regrets negative emissions technology. And then it's no regrets because I'm about to have grandchildren probably. And someday they're going to look at me and go, so weren't you here when all this went down and what did you do? Yeah, <laughs> I'll yeah. be able to say I did everything I could think of, whether it worked or not. I don't know, but I tried. So I just listened to a podcast, I think on Vox called no regrets. I think somebody had written a book about the no regrets. Oh, you should yeah. kind of figure out how you guys can kind of cross promote or something. <laughs> Maybe we should. But, of course, but no one ever has saying, no regrets. Actually, you know what? If you learn from things you think you regret, but uh, <laughs> yes, uh, no, the, I, the, it doesn't the other work. One. I have I have grandchildren right now, so I'm already thinking about how I have to explain to them what I'm yeah. doing and my share. But right. I don't know if I can that? have as good a story as Sally Calhoun has. So. Uh. <laughs> it's it's uh, now one more thing. Back of people come to the events that are taking place and conversations like this that that would be at the Piscinus Ranch. Um, you said you had a bunch of barns. I mean, did you actually have people go out and sit in barns and they have flip charts and sit on bales of hay or, or, or what? Well, we're a little bit past bales of hay. Um, oh. We actually, we actually are also one of the biggest things going on here that I, we haven't mentioned yet is that we are a hospitality venue. So we have an event center. So 26 weekends a year we host weddings. And so, cause what I realized is that, well, we host weddings partly because it's very, it's lucrative. 
And also because it connects us to the local community where we're mostly considered a little fringy, but we're not fringy when it comes to weddings. Um, But it also gives us means and an excuse to fix up the venue so that we can have these more interesting conversations the rest of the year and and during the week. So yes, we have big rebuilt barns and we have restored about 25 buildings here and uh, a number of people can can stay here. So we can host convenings where 30 or 40 people stay here for a few days and have very interesting conversations. And we're now, my last big capital project is we are in the process of building a commercial kitchen and dining hall for 100 people. Oh, so, right. I, I like right, yourself. We, we got lamb, we got wine. <laughs> um, I just had uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jesse McDougall on, and he has a savory hub in Vermont. And he's added Airbnb to his farming operation and and they've got pasture raised products and so forth. One point he made is that agriculture is one of those and and add on kind of thing. I'm not saying that right, but it's like it's you need to put together several enterprises to be viable. You really have to stack enterprises on this land base, right? Every acre has to do more than just feed a sheep. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Well, and then one other thing, I want to go back to the meat for a minute, because I, I understand pasture raising livestock. Uh, but the problem always is that then you got to process them. I mean, you got to turn them into meat somewhere. Um, and there's not a lot of processing plants. How how do you get that done? Well, I considered, I looked into building a plant here, ran into all kinds of California regulatory issues. I ended up operating a plant in the Central Valley. I opened in March of 2008. What a, what a seat I had for the global um, crash. <laughs> oh, well, that was a yes. tough time. It was, so I, I have a lot of experience in the meat processing business. It is a problem. Um, it is a challenge, but I actually think it's beginning to turn around a little bit. I think there's a well, lot of interesting in, interest in processing. It's still, it's still hard to build plants. It's still hard to get investment in plants. I think well, compared to the to days it- when they were going away, right? We right. lost so many. Right. I right. think maybe that's slowing down. We aren't losing them anymore as much. I think it's getting better uh, because for one thing, I mean, the USDA is just making some grants available and making assistance available to yes. get plants built. And I've talked to people all over the country that are reporting that one or another is kind of in the process. And we'll see if they can keep up with the promise. Hopefully they can. But yeah. uh, that's we'll, we'll that's the biggest that's the biggest challenge uh, across the country. The other thing is too is uh, like the savory uh, folks, uh, you just see livestock as an important part of recovering the land. That yes. um, and and I see that um, you know lots of different places around that, that people are rediscovering livestock, and that it's part of um, having uh, you know the healthiest soil possible. Particularly in the in the in the West, right? Particularly in the place where as Alan Saver would say it's brittle, right? I mean, so if in the east, if east of the hundredth meridian, you know, you right. you you leave, you walk away from a field and you just leave it. Yes, it will grow trees, it will recover, it will be by it will be diverse. Here, if you walk away from these my grasslands and don't graze them, what you're gonna get is a massive poison oak and coyote bush. It's yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to, the same thing is not going to happen. So yes, I actually think it's kind of, it would be immoral to take all the animals off the Western landscape. We need to keep the animals and we just need to manage them 
better. Maybe we need to bring back bison and we need to take down fences, that, but we can't just have no animals and we can't walk away yeah, and leave yeah. it. The other thing I was thinking is if we, if we actually, you know, reintegrate animals into cropping systems, like we're working really hard to get sheep back into vineyards and sheep into orchards, like in the almond orchards. And also we're using sheep for fire mitigation. Yeah. We need, we need a lot more animals. We need millions we more sheep. And, and there's, um, I think as we speak, there's something, somebody's got 400 goats in a, in an area right here in Sacramento within the city limits and they're cleaning up some areas. And then I think we're getting um, a lot more attention to getting them back into grazing and the forest lands and so forth, where they can help us, you know, mitigate the fire damage. And you mentioned the hundredth meridian, which I think goes right through Salina, Kansas, uh, where the Land Institute is based. And are yes. you familiar with them? Yes. Which mm -hmm. um, that's interesting because the, the gentleman that started it actually started as head of a department at Sac State in Sacramento State and went back to where he was raised in the middle of Kansas. But in the 100th Meridian, on one side of the 100th Meridian, you know, you had enough water and the other side you didn't. And the way they started dividing up ranch land was kind of looked at differently at the 100th meridian. But they pay attention to perennials and trying to bring uh, perennials back with uh, uh, Kernja, I think, is a grain that has roots that will go 10 or 15 feet deep. Right. It's a perennial grain. It's, it's interesting, though, to think about. I mean, one question, the, the work they've done is really cool and, and really long term. At the same time, we have annual wheats that work really well. And, and there's a lot of work in Australia for some people are doing something called pasture cropping, mm -hmm. where you'll grow a warm season perennial grass, and then you'll just drill in a cool season grain. Mm. And you get yields of about 75% of what you would get in a grain monoculture. Wow. So I, I always, I, I totally admire the Land Institute, but at the same time, I'm like, do we need a perennial wheat when we have such great annual wheats? We really need a new system. We don't want to grow a monoculture of perennial wheat. That doesn't solve the problem either because monocultures don't create healthy soil. So you need you need diversity in whatever you system you've got. Yeah. I think I think you need I think you need both. What an exciting time to be caring about the land and farms and, and making adjustments and doing what you're doing. And uh, it really admire your work. It's ex exciting. And well, and you. again, I think if we have the folks that are listening to this podcast that want to figure out how they can tap in and participate in activity or get married at your ranch for crying out loud. You know, you, you cover the waterfront, literally. If you don't care about grazing sheep, you can care about getting married out there. Yes. Whatever <laughs> so, you want to do here, we're up for it. Bring your uh, RV in park. We're part of Harvest Toast too. So we're <laughs> at Pisces Ranch. And it's PiscinusRanch.com. Did I get that right? Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Well, Sally Calhoun, I really like what you're doing. We're going to cross paths again sometime. I'm going to try to get over to your neck of the woods. And I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Oh, thank you much. I, I enjoyed it. And yes, not far from Sacramento. So uh, no, it's not too far. We'll get no, out no. again. All right. Take care. All right. We'll Bye. see you soon. Bye. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. <music>